From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll learn how people in Wisconsin are being trained for green jobs. Then we'll remember the first general manager of WUWM, Rue Hill, who passed away recently. I knew our goal was solid to be a community service, not just a university. I try to be modest about it, but uh, I'm so proud. It's just great. We'll speak with an author who wrote about his experience seeing a total solar eclipse with his son. I thought I knew what I was going to experience, but the moment it was a total eclipse and we took off our eclipse glasses, everyone was hooting and everyone was cheering. It was just a really fascinating experience. Plus, Bubbler Talk looks into whatever happened to the animatronic bear orchestra at the former Grand Avenue Mall. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, oh look, look, look without your glasses, buddy. Whoa! <laughs> that is the sound of a father and son experiencing a total solar eclipse. The father, a children's book author, went on to write a book about that experience, and we'll speak with him about it later in the show. But first, WUWM and NPR are focusing on solutions to climate change this week. You've heard stories about organic farming and the Wisconsin State Climatology Office. These stories explore ways to mitigate the impacts of climate change. Wisconsin is poised to get an estimated $4 billion in federal investments for clean energy infrastructure. That's from President Joe Biden's sweeping climate bill. In order to take advantage of those funds and implement the climate solutions that will help Wisconsin rein in planet-warming pollution, the state will need a lot of trained workers. WUWM's Lena Tran speaks with Lindsay Bloomer, the president and CEO of the Workforce Intermediary Wisconsin Regional Training Partnership, or WRTP Big Step. Tell me about the work that you do at WRTP Big Step. We are a workforce intermediary that focuses on paving the way for equitable career pathways for people of color and women into sectors such as construction, manufacturing, clean energy, broadband expansion, and transportation and logistics. We do that through a variety of ways, including certified pre-apprenticeship programs, educational opportunities, advocacy, and outreach. Wisconsin's green workforce, why is everyone talking about this right now? So as we continue to learn more about climate change and about how it's affecting communities, how it's affecting people, and how it's affecting the way we live and work, we're focused on what the next generation of our workforce and our economy will look like in terms of what careers and positions will be available in order to address some of the effects that we're experiencing currently. So it's really a long range look into if we're experiencing issues now, how can we adjust our workforce, our occupations, and subsequently our workforce and training programs to ensure that we're ready to uh, tackle these issues in the near future? What's happening behind the scenes to try to prepare this workforce? Training is one of the tools we can use and pre-apprenticeship is one of the tools we can use. But as an intermediary, it's building the sectoral partnership because it takes the employers, training providers, educational institutions, unions or other member organizations, and a whole host of community-based organizations, municipalities, and the state itself to ensure that there are seamless and equitable career pathways 
And while it seems long-term, there are things happening on the ground right now. So to put it in perspective, if the IRA, the BIL money is uh, scheduled for about five years, that means that those who are around seventh, eighth grade will actually be graduating still in time to take advantage of a lot of these occupational opportunities. So we're looking at youth, uh, exposing youth to different green career paths, meaning it could be anything from lead lateral replacement to solar installation to water equity. So uh, working with our waterways and keeping those clean and safe. And it could even be broadband expansion, thinking about how we can ensure that our footprint is not as large when we're drilling, when we're directional boring for things like that. So it encompasses a whole host of things. So exposing youth, uh, we're also uh, adding on plug and play kind of training opportunities for youth and adults. So as we know uh, electrical vehicles uh, will be a big player in the future. So ensuring that we have folks who can build and maintain EV charging stations across the state. And we're starting some of those steps right now as the same with solar installation, ensuring folks have uh, low voltage electrical training so that uh, we know they will be building these things now and far into the future. Mm -hmm. What does the youth outreach look like? Is that y'all kind of going to schools and saying like, hey, we want to have a speaker come to the classroom? Like what, what does that really look like on the ground? One of the best ways that we can expose youth to all types of occupations, particularly those that they may not have considered before, is starting very young. So Research shows that kids start deselecting careers in as early as fifth grade if they don't know what it is and if they don't see themselves represented. Um, so they don't see anyone who looks like them in those occupations. So we start as early as second grade and we partner with boys and girls clubs. We partner with Urban League. Um, we partner with public school districts. Um, we partner with private schools to start you know, building birdhouses in second grade. We start talking about, can we build a, a circuit, right? So that kids can understand that this is a career, it is doable and you work with your hands. And that can be very satisfying. And actually when we are exposed to doing it instead of just having like a guest speaker we really understand what's involved in that then clearly we progress through lots of different exposures we, we visit union training halls we see things in action we visit some projects and we keep doing projects along the way until even we get to youth apprenticeship in high school and even certified pre-apprenticeship in high school the city of milwaukee for instance is looking at this opportunity as a way to tackle economic inequity but as you've kind of alluded to, many of these jobs are have been and are currently dominated by white men. It sounds like a big part of the or the way that you see it is that addressing that starts with meeting kids where they're at and starting really young. Is there anything else you want to say about how you think employers or you know the government should be thinking about bridging that gap? So it's going to take all of us welcoming folks into the workforce and into occupations and into sectors where we where have traditionally been they've been shut out of, and that's because of the federal infrastructure, because of climate change itself, and because of our demographics. Right, that we are changing as a society, and when we talk about equity, we talk about equity in terms of climate equity that everyone deserves to have safe places places to live that are clean and healthy, but we also talk about equity in terms of workforce, that we have access to those positions, those, those family-sustaining wage jobs that will carry us now and into the future. But equity in terms of, you know, research shows 
that communities that have been disproportionately impacted by climate events, by climate change, are those where people of color tend to live. And if we can be the own solutions in our own communities, I think there's a vital untapped workforce and exposure to youth and adults about these careers because we have a true connection to our community. We want to see our communities thrive. And to be able to have perhaps a, a a family sustaining career in ensuring that is is just an unbelievable opportunity we have for both youth so exposing youth early and showing them how they can be solutions to climate justice in their community but also to adults who are looking to either shift careers or who understand and have seen the impacts of what's happening in their community and want to be part of the solution and then working with employers and with the city and with the government to subsidize or stipend trainings so that people can really focus on getting the training that they need to and the skills and competencies necessary to address these issues. And then also uh, looking at policies, hiring policies, work policies, flexible policy, childcare, right? All of these different things that play into ensuring that people come to work safe, skilled, trained, and ready to go. And you've talked about how culturally competent curriculum is important for the success of these things. Can you say more about what that looks like? So I think any curriculum now, but I know particularly with our curriculum at WRTB Big Step, and when we're talking about training for careers in the clean economy, we have, you know, traditionally there has been a lens through which a, you know, a white, perhaps male perspective of how we interact with careers, how we interact with jobs, how we interact with our economy, with our community. And when we think about a culturally competent curriculum, it means it's informed by those who are themselves learning it. It is informed by the understanding that there has there is a racial justice and gender economic component to it. And when we incorporate that into our curriculum, we can really get to the heart of solutioning to collaboration and what partnership actually looks like rather than inter or not acknowledging the power dynamics that have existed for generations. Really tackling those all within a culturally competent curriculum so that everyone isn't fitting into what they think is the ideal, but instead belonging to the solution itself. Do you think that we are thinking about how to make sure that these jobs last You know, beyond the finite time that the IRA funding we want to make sure that these like fifth graders that we're engaging with can work beyond just like this package of legislation, right? So what does that look like, making sure that, that these are long lasting kind of trajectories for people? I think it's incredibly important for anyone who's in workforce development or training and education to have the long-term sense of we don't train for jobs, right? We don't trained just for specific timely occupations because there's funding, right? We're talking about generational, generational skills and competencies that we'll need far into the future. And so when we think about that, if there are immediate needs, we can train for those. But really what we're looking for is waterfalling career opportunities that then have the opportunity to gain additional skills, to do additional training, and that have a built out pathway. So for example, Somebody may start in a school-based program as youth, may transition into a registered apprenticeship, 
may transition into a, a different career or go to a technical college. But no matter what you do, those tracks run parallel. So you may jump from a, a training program into a technical college program, from a technical college program to a badging or credentialing program. And knowing that the infrastructure we build in the next five years to a decade will need to be maintained. It will be need to be upgraded. And who knows after a decade, what even new technologies will emerge. So setting people up for a lifetime of learning and educational opportunities for that maintenance, the upgrading, and then the new technologies and understanding and providing incentives that you can upskill, you can retrain, you can enter in, you can use credit for prior learning, you can use related instruction to, to work towards associates, bachelor's degrees, and move through an educational system in that way so that for an entire generation, you are learning, you're educating, and you have opportunities in those careers. Lindsay Bloomer is the president and CEO of the Workforce Intermediary Wisconsin Regional Training Partnership. She spoke with WUWM's Lena Tran. This conversation was a part of WUWM and NPR's Climate Solutions Week coverage. You can find more stories on ways to mitigate the impacts of climate change at WUWM.com. The person responsible for putting WUWM on the air has passed away. Rue Hill died late last week at 99 years old. In 1963, Hill was hired by the UW Board of Regents to create a public radio station at UW-Milwaukee. A year later, WUWM started broadcasting with Hill as its general manager. He held that role until 1976. Hill also taught at UWM for more than three decades and was the first chair of the Mass Communications Department. Four years ago, Hill spoke with Lake Effect's Bonnie North about how WUWM was launched. Here's a portion of that conversation, beginning with Hill explaining how in the late 1950s, he started advocating for a national radio network. We were starting talking then about um, possibilities of a national network. And wildly, perhaps even a national public broadcasting service. But there was massive uh, objection in Congress and in the White House. But we had some very strong lobbyists and helpful friends and uh, a clientele that recognized a need that we were describing. And uh, things began to happen. So five of us gathered from five of those Eastern Radio Network affiliates met in Madison to talk about the possibilities of a national network for radio. And though we thought probably, and this was in 1959, that it was inevitable, but would we live long enough to know what inevitable meant? And, uh, but figured it'd be at least another 10 years before there could be a, a national system for television and for radio publicly supported. Because that was a lot, of, a lot of money, they thought, for uh, who's gonna listen, who's gonna watch? Uh, but finally, things began to happen. So WAER was one of the stations that was on the deck. And then I finished my dissertation, and Ohio University called and said, we'd like someone to chair a department and manage the radio and the TV functions. 
And I said, gee, I'm, I'm interested. And it was a firm deal, and I said, okay, I'm, I'll talk about it with the family, and I'll get back to you. And I flew back home as the telephone rang. And it was an old friend from Wayne State who had now relocated to the University of Wisconsin-Madison as director of radio TV. His name was Lee Sherman Dreyfus. He said, I've been on a search committee because the regents have decided that Milwaukee is big enough and brawly enough and uh, troublesome enough it ought to have its own radio station, UWM. And they were amazed at uh, Milwaukee and wondered, what, what we do? For, where, where do we start? And it started with a search committee, and they found me. And I said, well, I just, I told Lee, I, I said, I've just accepted a position temporarily at uh, Athens. And he said, uh, tell the Athenians to go whatever, because you're coming here for interviews. So I interviewed and uh, was offered three positions and one salary. A third of me was to be director of radio TV and to put a radio station on the air as soon as possible and television facilities, which could only be rudimentary, but uh, please start them for us. And uh, to teach two courses. So I talked to the family about it and they said, after all this, what's new? <laughs> so yes, let's move to Milwaukee. <laughs> so WUWM went on the air September 9th, 1964. A year later. A year la So it from, took you a year to get it. arrival. Okay. So you can imagine the furor. So I met with uh, more than 100, well, it's actually 106 UWM students, graduates and undergraduates. And the charge was, uh, we got to put a radio station together and program it and uh, staff it and keep it on the air. And uh, many of those 106 stayed on. Uh, with a number of very fascinating people that uh, I've kept as friends since. So, let's see, six years after the station began in 64, the journalism department chair talked to me, and he said, look, it's, uh, we're overdue at UWM. We should combine journalism and what you teach in radio, TV, and film. So what are we going to do about that? And I said, well, let's have lunch. And that was the first of many. And then with the dean, whom we had to uh, do a sales job, and he thought it was a bully idea. So we became the Department of Mass Communication. And I said, Chairman Ken, you've done a beautiful job with journalism. How about starting out with a brand new department with a new name, Mass Communication? He said, one department at a time, if you don't mind, you be chair. So I chaired a department and decided that was the year that uh, I should probably not be doing two administrative jobs and teach at the same time and keep a family. <laughs> so I departed the station in 76 because another complication was that I'd become the secretary of the Wisconsin Broadcasters Association. So there's a little conflict there, yeah. Well, now when did... For those who weren't around at the time, when did NPR become? Because at the beginning of the conversation, you said you had been talking right. about, with your cohorts around right. the country, about starting what eventually became NPR. I think WUWM came first, right? Oh, no. WUWM was first. Yeah. So we had our, our feet wet and had begun doing funding 
and supporting ourselves, not to the extent we should have, but now do. So we qualified after the original acceptance of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which was viewed by most as simply for television. Because radio's already there, they're working, they're doing it. But we need public support for a national public radio service. So many of us uh, lobbied Congress. Um, I remember tromping the uh, Senate building and needing a haircut. And uh, I walked into the uh, barbershop building and uh, a fellow came up and looked at me with a great smile and he said, you look like one of my men. I said, from what state? And he said, Minnesota. I said, I think I know who you are. <laughs> Hubert Humphrey, whom I saw again on the transit between uh, buildings. And uh, we became penmates after that which was fun. So in the time from when WUWM started in 1964 and you left 12 years later to do other things, how had the landscape changed for public broadcasting, public radio in particular, but for public broadcasting? Were people becoming more accepting of it? Were they depending on it? Had that started yet? Well, I think there was a pattern that happened. WHA, of course, had, had been the first and established itself, and others followed very quickly. And the state universities were able to do it first with uh, capital and with a large audience to master, and they did it. When you look at what WUWM is now and the journey that it took to get there, are you surprised? Are you surprised by what we've become? I try to be modest about it, but uh, I'm so proud. It's just great. You had hoped that that's what this would turn well, into? one always has hope, but uh, how do you define hope? What are its parameters? <laughs> how far should you extend your uh, imagination? But I knew our goal was solid, to be a community service, not just a university, what one of my faculty colleagues used to call the sandbox for kids who want to learn about radio. I downed him for that, but he repeated it endlessly anyway. Well, I think that is one of the balances that uh, probably due to your leadership, that it's certainly a university station. It, the university holds the license, but the community feels ownership of it. Oh, yeah. And we could convey to the individuals that, uh, look, now you're a professional. You're on the air. So watch your language and uh, keep your voice in shape. And uh, mind your Q's and P's and your language, which reminds me of a story we had. Uh, Bob Reitman, originally on the air with a poetry show, and came to me and said, uh, it's time we do something about rock. I'd like to do it. And I said, rock? And he said, no, come on, Doc. <laughs> so I said, okay, let's do it. Let's do it. So he claims now that I created his uh, career. It's just interesting to think what the radio landscape was like in the 1960s, because I'm old enough to remember that, how it changed in the 70s, the advent of NPR when we started to get All Things Considered, and then Morning Edition in, what, 1980 or 81, whenever, 79, whenever it went on the air, 
And, and I think you must look back and think, how did we get here? This is really cool. It really is. Well, with the proliferation of rock stations, all competing and all commercial, and yes, there was a lot of music, but there were a lot of commercials, until things began to drain out on the advertising side, given all the com competing voices. So there was a place for serious talk and serious questioning and serious uh, discussion, and we could provide it. Now that you're long retired from this, do you listen still? Are you still one of our listeners? Uh, starting at 4.30 in the morning and uh, during the day to find out what really happened. And uh, at night when I uh, check out. Are you pleased with what you hear? Always. That was WUWM's first general manager, Rue Hill, speaking with Bonnie North in 2019. Hill passed away last week. Remember those animatronic bears that would show up in the former Grand Avenue Mall around the holidays? We'll tell you what happened to the bear orchestra later in the show. But first, we'll tell you about a few things going on in Milwaukee this month. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. October is here, and like always, there's so much to do in the central city this month. Chesney Wardell, staff reporter at the Milwaukee Neighborhood News Service, joins Lake Effect Sam Woods to share everything that's going on this month, from a party at the Domes to Dia de los Muertos. So October is here. It's the season of crunchy leaves, warm drinks, brisk walks, and my birthday. Go Libras. Hey, happy, happy <laughs> but um, as always, there is so much to do in Milwaukee to ring in the new month. And Chesney Wardell is here from the Milwaukee Neighborhood News Service to give us some guidance about what is going on in the central city this month. Now, Chesney, this is a this is a bit of a role reversal for me, at least, is because I until pretty recently, I was the one sitting in your chair talking about things to do in Milwaukee. So from the other side of the desk, I would love to uh, welcome you and say thank you for joining us on Lake Effect. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right. So this first event uh, we got going on in October, it's getting a little bit colder, starting to think about winter coats. And it sounds like a church is organizing a coat giveaway. Indeed. So a new season is approaching in Milwaukee, and it's going to get colder, as you said. So God's House of Refuge Apostolic Faith Church We'll be doing a coat giveaway Saturday, October 7th from 11 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. at 6659 West Mill Road. Um, so this is a first come and first serve giveaway. So spread the word to those who you know are in need of coats. Yeah, go get those coats, man. <laughs> it gets cold here. Then it's better to be prepared, right? So, um, so, okay, we've hit a coat giveaway in the church. If you need a coat, go get a coat or let someone know who might need a coat. But then it's party time at the exactly. Domes. Exactly, we love parties. <laughs> yes, what's going on at the Domes this month? So come to the Mitchell Park Domes on Sunday, October 8th for a celebration of this horticultural conservatory hosted by Dacomamo, Wisconsin. Um, this will include festivities for families and children. Um, also stick around to see the winners of a photo contest um, this is the Dome Summer Photo Contest, 
Um, this lasts from 1.30 p.m. to 4 p.m. at Mitchell Park on 5245 South Layton Avenue. All right, so go party the domes while we can. Um, we're kind of jumping all over the place when it comes yeah. to five years because <laughs> this next one is a little bit more serious, yeah. um, an important topic, but a serious one, hair discrimination. It sounds like there's a discussion about that. Definitely. Um, so the next event, it does revolve around the Crown Act, which stands for Create a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair. So this act is used to uh, prohibit hair discrimination, so feel free to come to the 2023 Cultures and Communities Festival on Sunday, October 8th at 4.30 to partake in a discussion on hair discrimination. Um, the Wisconsin Black Historical Society Museum on 2620 West Center Street is where this is all held, and it is open to all. Yeah, important discussion, and I would also add, like, even if you're not able to make it for this specific discussion, try to make some time, if you haven't been there, to go to the Wisconsin uh, Black Historical Society Museum. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful building. Uh, Indeed. Uh, yes, uh, it used to be a, be a firehouse. There's a whole kind of community gathering space where I can guess this discussion is being held, as well yeah. as a museum, and and the people there, Claiborne and Jamila, are just, just wonderful folks. So even if you can't make it for this specific event, um, you know, that place is open year-round. Um, but this next event is is more, sounds like more of a professional networking event uh, put on by yes. the LGBT Chamber of Commerce. Yes. So if you aren't familiar with the Wisconsin LGBT Chambers of Commerce, well, now you are. <laughs> <laughs> We've said their name. <laughs> yes. Um, they're having a Milwaukee Coffee Connection for Chambers members. Um, this is a nonprofit organization that supports and promotes inclusivity for LGBT-owned businesses in Wisconsin. Um, this networking event kicks off at 8.30 a.m. on Friday, October 13th at the Milwaukee Jewish Federation on 1360 North Prospect Avenue. So be sure to register on Eventbrite. So hosts can bring the coffee and the pastries and don't miss this opportunity to connect with other business owners. Dia de los Muertos. So yes. October. Um, can't talk about October uh, in Milwaukee without uh, mentioning Dia de los Muertos. What's going on this year? Yeah, so the Dia de los Muertos, it means Day of the Dead in Spanish. And it is a traditional holiday celebrated in Mexico to honor ancestors and individuals who have passed away. So on Saturday, October 28th, at the Forest Home Cemetery in Arboretum, is hosting a Diaz de los Muretos festival that will have music, activities, and a setup for guests to place pictures, flowers, um, ofrendas, which also means uh, offerings in Spanish. And these are crafted by local community members, so the festival is from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., but um, if you arrive earlier at 9.30 a.m., you can partake in a 5K run or a two-mile walk. All festivities take place at 2405 West Forest Home Avenue, so come to Milwaukee Southside for a great time. <laughs> All right, yeah, you got your, your schedule and your, your address in there, right? You yeah. just, like walking people down to uh to to celebrate Dia de los Muertos. Yes, it's uh, a love fun it. event. 
actually it is. been before. Yeah, the no, it, are super cool. It's it's wonderful, and like that event and other Dia de los Muertos events throughout the city. You, you're right. It's a kind yeah. of you can see people's heartfelt expressions yes. of their of loved ones who have passed on, and kind of what they mean to um, our neighbors here, living here today, ourselves yes. and our neighbors living here today, and it's 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 beautiful to kind of be in and, and soak in. Facts. Um, and but, they are willing to tell you about their culture, too. Yes, true. It's a very true. welcoming area. True, true, true. Um, well, Chesney, thank you so much for Thanks joining for us on Lake me. Effect. <laughs> yes, and um, looking forward to next month. Definitely. I will be here. <laughs> Chesney Wardell is a staff reporter with the Milwaukee Neighborhood News Service. She spoke to Lake Effect Sam Woods. You can find more information about the events they discussed at wuwm.com. During a total solar eclipse, the moon passes between the sun and earth, blocking the bright face of the sun and revealing our star's pearly white atmosphere. To see this, you've got to head to what's called the path of totality. That's the path the moon's shadow takes across the earth. If you're in the right place at the right time for a brief moment, day becomes night. August 2017 was the last time a total solar eclipse happened in the United States. Six years ago, Andy Rash drove to Illinois to see it with his young son. He shares that story in a new children's book called Eclipse. Rash is a children's book author and illustrator and teaches at Myad. He speaks with WUWM reporter Lena Tran. You have this new book, Eclipse, which is out. Tell me about this book and where it began for you. I went with my son to see the total eclipse in 2017 when he was just seven years old and it was just the two of us on this trip. And we were so amazed by the, uh, just the whole experience of it that it never really left me and so I wrote a picture book and it stars me and my son and just tells the story of viewing an eclipse, hoping that people will go out and try to see the eclipse that's coming up, especially the one in, in April. As an author and an artist, you're able to convey to people like how great eclipses are and you know why they should go out of their way to see them. How do you describe you know what an eclipse is or what that experience was like? Well, first of all, the one thing that uh, made a huge difference was going to the path of totality. It makes a lot of difference, and we just looked on a website to tell us where to go. I tried my best through my illustrations to try to convey what an it's a really fascinating, unusual experience. It looks very, very strange and extremely beautiful. I just tried my best with gouache and digital to uh, recreate the experience. And something that's fun about this book is that you wrote it from your son's perspective. What was that like? He actually wrote a, a, a project for school uh, about this trip too, and that really inspired me. I thought the uh, perspective of the, of the son would be the uh, more engaging for kids and the anticipation that goes throughout the book is it's intended to kind of mirror the as as the sun approaches the moon passes behind it and then continues on yeah i absolutely got that i love that it's framed around this countdown i'm sure that's really fun for kids but it's like two months i've been planning you know a week we're packing a day left that me and my dad are driving down and it really captures the sense of anticipation that's so unique with eclipses, which is that we know exactly when and where it's going to happen. 
down to the second. But once it does, it's just like you totally lose yourself in all of these strange emotions that you didn't really know that you could feel about the sun. It, it was really surprising. I mean, I thought I knew what I was going to experience, but the moment it was a total eclipse and we took off our eclipse glasses, everyone was hooting and, you know, and everyone was cheering and crickets were chirping. It was, it was just a really fascinating experience. Do you remember what your son's reaction was at that time and what it was like to share with him? I do, especially because I took a video, you know, and you can't see anything because it's phone video, but I could hear what he was saying and he was really, really excited and it was an extremely, you know, it was a really breathtaking experience. Andy actually dug out that video that he took in 2017 during Totality. You can hear the excitement. Oh. oh, look, look, without your glasses, buddy. Well, we are super lucky in the U.S. that we have another eclipse coming up, another total solar eclipse coming up in April 2024. So for any coronaphiles or anyone that is like converted by this conversation is like, wow, I really want to see this. There's another opportunity. But what I love about the end of your book is that you have your son, he's like already looking forward to the next one. And at the time, it must have sounded so far away. That's seven years ago. But I love how you really capture the passage of time. There's this really lovely illustration of you two together at presumably the next eclipse, and he's taller than you, there's more gray in your hair. Yeah, reflect on the time that's passed, and what do you guys have planned for the eclipse next year? You know, when I drew that image, the intention was that it was going to be an eclipse much further in the distance, <laughs> but since my son is 13, he is nearly as tall as me now, and I was looking at that last, illustration and it's just like oh no that's already happened we know that we are going to be going to see it on the path of totality and going to bring the rest of my family this time as well because it, it's just we, it's just not to be missed then there's the annular eclipse that's going to be happening on october 14th i've been invited to the air and space museum in dc and i'm going to be presenting the book there so that's where i'll be for that one it's, it's such a cool way to mark the passage of time on our planet. Just like these crazy intersections of Earth and the sun and the moon. It's an enormous clock. It's really amazing. And uh, I have uh, maps in the front of the back of the book that show where the paths will be far into the future. So we know where eclipses will be like in the distant future already. Okay, so imagine that you have a friend who is looking at this map um, for next year's eclipse and is like, oh, it seems like kind of a long drive and there will be probably a lot of traffic. What would you say to your friend to be like, no, you should totally take your kid and go. It's really worth it. I would say they're right. It's going to be a lot of traffic. <laughs> Getting back took forever. And there's actually a page devoted to traffic in the book. But 
I think it's absolutely worth it. It was just a world-shaking experience for us, and we still talk about it all the time, even outside you know, the context of uh, publishing this book this year. I am going to be reading the book and signing the book at Boswell here in Milwaukee on October 7th at 11 a.m., and I'd love for people to come out. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. Andy Rash is a children's book author. His newest book is called Eclipse. Rash joined WUWM's Lena Tran. The next total solar eclipse to cross North America takes place on April 8, 2024, so mark your calendars. In about 10 minutes, we'll bring you a new episode of our Sounds Like Milwaukee series, where people from the community share their favorite sounds. But first... Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome. My name is Leonard Bearstein. If you recognize that sound or you remember the animatronic bears that used to be in the Grand Avenue Mall, you're going to want to stick around to find out what happened to them. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Hodges on saxophone and our drummer Gene Who, as you can see. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Bubbler Talk is back. WUWM's Emily Files kicks off our new season by looking into what happened to the animatronic bear orchestra that used to be in the former Grand Avenue Mall. Bubbler Talk, quenching Milwaukee's thirst for knowledge. I'm Emily Files. If you've lived in Milwaukee for more than a few years, you might remember a charming or creepy spectacle, depending on your point of view, that appeared at the Grand Avenue Mall each holiday season. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome. My name is Leonard Bearstein. It was an orchestra made up of 18 animatronic bears, about four feet tall and dressed in suits and gowns. Most had instruments in their paws. If you don't know what an animatronic is, remember Chuck E. Cheese? Yeah, that. The orchestra's conductor was a mustachioed robotic Bruin named Leonard Bearstein, a nod to American composer Leonard Bernstein. If you think it's too early for Christmas music, bear with me. It's the most wonderful time of the year. The Leonard Bearstein Orchestra performed an automated 45-minute concert every hour, with hits like Santa Baby and Deck the Halls. Between each song, Leonard would banter with the musicians. I'm sure if I knew a reindeer named Olive, I would know it. But my dear, you just sang about her. Olive, the other reindeer. Justin Kern worked in the Grand Avenue Mall in the 2010s. He remembers the furry carolers with their slowly blinking eyes and jerking movements. It was in this kind of, you know, strange uh, overlap of like kind of cool and technologically interesting, but also like immediately outdated. There was some like just relentless charm that well into the 2000s that these bears were still down in the mall. But the Bear Orchestra was really for kids. 24-year-old Dean Buzalaki remembers going to the mall as a kid every winter. I always just like, was like put in a trance with the bears playing and 
it just like symbolized like was one of the things that symbolized Christmas time in Milwaukee. Fast forward to 2018, Christmas came around and the Bears weren't there. To find out what happened, I called Todd Alexander in Charlotte, North Carolina. He was the right-hand man of Paul Lawrence, who created the Bears. So Paul Lawrence was a marketing guru, so to speak, back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, worked for a company called Faison and Associates. They built malls up and down the East Coast. Todd says Paul was always dreaming up ways to draw people to malls. He had created an animatronic bear quartet. Why not an orchestra? Ten sets of the Leonard Bearstein Orchestra were built and placed in malls, including the Grand Avenue, in the early 2000s. The reason the Bears were in Milwaukee was because we got the management contract way back when to try to bring Grand Avenue back to its glory days. Unfortunately, I, in my heart of hearts, I think the mall was too far gone at that point. The Grand Avenue, like many shopping malls, suffered a grisly fate. Traffic declined, stores shut down, even the mall Santas disappeared. The mall changed ownership, and Todd says the new owners have kept the bears in storage. The Grand Avenue was redeveloped recently. The building where the bears used to roam is now a hip eatery called the Third Street Market Hall. I reached out to Market Hall owner Omar Sheikh, and he confirmed that the Milwaukee set of the Leonard Bearstein Orchestra is still in storage. He said there are no plans for the Bears at this point. Justin Kern, who used to work at the Grand Avenue, wonders if the Bears will ever emerge from their hibernation. Milwaukee feels like just the kind of place that has this great mix of like um, hometown pride and like appreciation for nostalgia. You could easily see Milwaukee being the place where the Bears get the chance at their their revival, their comeback tour of sorts. Todd Alexander wants the Bears to return to Milwaukee, too. He says if there's an interested venue, he has an extra set of the Leonard Bearstein Orchestra that he could bring here, maybe even in time for the holiday season. It doesn't hurt to hope for a Christmas miracle. Emily Files, 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Leonard, play us out. Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer had a very shiny nose. And if you ever saw it, you would even say it glows. Support for Bubbler Talk comes from Palermo's Pizza and UW Credit Union. What have you always wanted to know about the Milwaukee area? Visit wuwm.com slash bubbler talk to submit your question. Bubbles. You know, my friends, this is a most wonderful time. You can hear Bubbler Talk every Thursday on Lake Effect and Fridays during Morning Edition and All Things Considered. You can also find more information and pictures at wuwm.com. And while you're there, submit your own question about the Milwaukee area. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Before we wrap up today's show, we bring you another episode of our series, Sounds Like Milwaukee. It's where we ask you to share your favorite sounds from the community. Today's episode has a classical twist with the audio and video producer for the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra. He tells WUWM's Mayan Silver why the symphony's tones feel like home, even when he's in a different country. Sometimes, to talk about what sounds like Milwaukee, you need to make a call to Canada. That's where Jeremy Toos was. 
He's the audio and video producer for the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra. Right now I'm in Victoria, BC, in my mom's house. If I look out the window, I can see the Olympic Peninsula across the way. So I'm actually looking at the United States right now, but I'm, I'm in Canada. Jeremy grew up in Alberta and was in Canada for the summer visiting family. For most of the year, he's in Milwaukee, but his job is remote. So he can listen to his favorite Milwaukee sounds anywhere, including when he's prepping the season's music for radio broadcast. So throughout Milwaukee's symphony orchestra season, we record 18 classical programs. And each of those programs has two or three performances plus a dress rehearsal. And at the end of the season, we're tasked with, or I am tasked with putting together a program of 13 programs for WFMT. And I sort of draw on all those performances. WFMT 98.7 FM, also WFMT.com, is Chicago's classical and folk music station. The Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra has been broadcasting their seasons on it since the early 1970s. So I load up all those files onto a hard drive and uh, I hopped in my car with my dog and drove up here. It took me a few days. Jeremy spent his summer reviewing what the Milwaukee Symphony had done throughout the year. Then he takes the best parts of each run through and puts it together, edited in a way that doesn't alert people that it's different performances. You know, to be clear, everything that you hear is all the musicians of the symphony on stage playing together at the same time. There's no studio trickery. There's no headphones and click tracks and there's no overdubs. There's no auto tune. <laughs> there's nothing like that going on. You can imagine in a concert, there's things like page turns and coughs and that person who forgot to turn off their cell phone, it rings and, you know, sometimes uh, things will go better one night than the other. Some performances involve first night jitters and others are a bit more relaxed. You know, if there's a mistake that's made, it doesn't happen very often, but if there are mistakes that are made, I can kind of edit around those things. Jeremy puts together the best representation of the symphony's season as possible. You might wonder though, how he got this job, the ear of the symphony. Well, he has a performance degree, a master's degree in music and sound recording at McGill University in Montreal, and he's been working for the MSO for eight years now. So the sounds have become personal. And so, you know, you, you know the players on stage. When I first start playing back, there's uh, especially in the woodwinds. Woodwinds always seem to have like uh, warm-up patterns and routines that they do. And so without even looking at the screen, I know if it's Todd playing the clarinet or Katie playing the oboe, because I, I sort of know their, their habits before they start playing. So I can sort of hear the people on stage. So that's, that's kind of a nice thing. It's like, I go away, but I sort of bring them all with me on my little hard drive. He's taking the sounds of Milwaukee wherever he goes. You've been listening to Beethoven's Symphony No. 3 in E-flat major, which the MSO performed in November 2022. Send in your favorite Milwaukee sounds. The instructions are at wuwm.com. Mayan Silver, 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.
Mayan Sounds Like Milwaukee wraps up today's show. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Joy Powers, Sam Woods, and Excret Nunez join me in producing Like Effect each week with help from Robert Larry. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Mayan Silver, Susan Bentz, and Lena Tran from the WUWM News Team this week. Jason Reevy is our studio engineer. Michelle Maternowski is our digital manager. Valeria Navarro-Viegas is our digital editor. Trapper Shep wrote our theme music. If you've missed any of Lake Effect this week, you can find all of our conversations at wuwm.com. If you'd like to take the show on the go, simply download the Lake Effect podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join us again on Monday at noon for Capital Notes, where we'll dive into the latest politics in Wisconsin. Plus, we'll look at how Afro-Latinos and their culture are being celebrated and represented during Hispanic Heritage Month. Thanks so much for joining us today, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.